0: Let's begin in our normal fashion of prayer, and then I have a few introductory comments to our text today, and then we'll, we'll begin. Dear Father, we thank you that this is a moment in which the Word of God can be proclaimed, but we recognize desperately the need uh, that we have to ask you to work through human vessel to communicate accurately and perhaps with insight what the Spirit of God has written for us. So we pray for your blessing on this hour, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, some are visiting today, so let me just give a very small sort of catch-you-up uh, paragraph. Uh, it was about the Thanksgiving in which we started a series. It's always good to have series, I think, when you talk about a church and its its life and function. And so we started the series in the book of Revelation, and this series is covering the first three chapters. And uh, so... Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3 are uh, letters that the Lord Jesus told John to write that were from the Lord Jesus to seven specific churches. Now, when I use the term church, we have to be very clear what we mean. Uh, the term church is used uh, sort of loosely today. And if you're out and about in the workplace and somebody says, well, that's what the church thinks, no one really knows what that means. Some people say, well, that's the Catholic Church or that's the Presbyterian Church. But the Bible has a very clear definition of the Church. And that's the definition we've been using. So let me just review that with you for a moment. When we say Church, the word is Ecclesia and it simply means those who have been called out. You have to ask yourself, called out? Called out to what? To dinner? Well, no, it's not the potluck that you're here for today. What it is, is God has called uh, so, sort of a, a, a massive call to the entire human race. And he says, listen, you may not know this, but you are fast on your way to death. Now, that would make sense to us because no one actually can uh, uh, get around physical death. Everybody has that appointment. Not a one of us will avoid that appointment. And so he says to the world, "Listen, you, I have an appointment to death, and it's it's sort of a, a it's not just a death that you get quit your heart quits beating and your air quits breathing, your lungs quit breathing. What it is, it's a death whereby you are separated from life from me. That's God who holds life, and and that's kind of eternally. But although that is a judgment that has to be dealt with because of." the failure of you, my creation, to follow my ways, I will provide a way of escape. I will provide a way that you don't have to experience that eternal separation from me. And so what he does, or what he did, is he interjected himself as as God into the human race in the form of Jesus Christ, who walked differently than any other man. How do we know that? Well, we've got this book here, and there's four writers, uh, actually, uh, yeah, four writers who all collaborate their stories. In ancient Near Eastern literature research, if you have one person that has written about an event That's huge data. But if you have four people writing about the same event and they all agree, that's unheard of. That is absolutely statistically impossible. And yet we've got that here. And so we can believe the historical record that when God interjected himself into the human race in the person of Jesus Christ, he did so for one unique soul um, uh, target and that was to pay for the sin of mankind. Thus, he, through using the the political system of that day and the religious system of that day, got himself to the place where he was actually pinned to a cross. Now, if you're just reading the story, you go, well, that's kind of tragic. But it's not tragic when you realize that this was all orchestrated, all designed by God himself so that you, his creature, could have your shortcomings, sins, felonies, crimes, misdemeanors, actually paid for. That's what happens. You break the law, you have to pay the law, right? You do the crime, you pay the time. Well, in this case, the payment was death. It was capital punishment. Now, what God has said is, he said, now listen, you trust this Jesus as your Savior. You are not just saved from eternal separation from me. I do more than that for you. I place you in something called the church. That's the definition we use. And that's the definition that Jesus was using when he identified these seven specific locations where people who believed in Christ as their Savior for their sins gathered together to study the Word of God, to worship God, to pray, to break bread, you know, communion, all those visible activities. Now, the problem is, is that when he saves us, we, we, he has taken out of you that, or he's diffused the power of the nature to sin, the nature to rebel against God. He's actually neutralized it, but it still has a manipulative effect upon us. And so when you gather as a church, what you see is that there are problems that occur. And we looked at all those problems. Ephesus, we looked at Sardis, we looked at Thia, uh, Pergamos and or Thyatira and Pergamos uh, and Smyrna. And now today we're on looking at this document written to the Church of Philadelphia. So that gives you a survey of where we've been and how we've gotten here. What I usually like to do is read the text. So we'll turn to Revelation chapter 3. And we'll begin reading in verse 7. It's not as long a letter as some of the other churches, so we can get through this, I hope. Verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key. Notice it's singular, the key of David, who opened, who he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. It's very authoritative. Like you don't undo what I do, and if I do it, you don't undo it either. You know, you don't get to have that privilege. I know your works. See, that's the word. Behold, see. I have set before you an open door, and no one can, no one can shut it for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Verse nine indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to and to know that I have loved you. Verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him the new name, my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the churches, what the spirit has to say to the churches. Now, this is full of information, but I'm going to divide it up into four major points. So this is for the homiletics class. All right, the homiletics class here, you young men, write these down because people ask you what they are. All right, here you go. Christ appreciates. That'll be for us in, uh, let me put my glasses back on. That'll be for us in verse 8. Christ appreciates. The next verse, verse 9. Christ uh, validates. Christ validates. Next verse, verse 10. Christ, all right, here's the word I had to make up. It's not in the English language. Affirmates, okay? He affirms, affirmates. And lastly, the last point is Christ authenticates. That'll be the closing verse there. So those four points are what we're going for today. The title of this message is simply this, Christ Speaks to the Church at Philadelphia. All right. Now, historically, just as we normally begin, um, the church or the uh, city of Philadelphia was built by a gentleman who honored his brother. You can see behind me, uh, let's see if I have this on, see right here, uh, and uh, it was uh, over time The uh, there was those who tried to change the name, for example, Rome tried to change the name, uh, but it never stuck it was they were always loyal to the history that they had the um uh, the location of the city again was around uh, some fertile volcanic uh, uh soil and thus they were able to grow vineyards uh the people of um of uh, of Philadelphia therefore would worship the god of wine that would make sense and as you know in in uh, the history of roman uh, idolatry uh, they would have very immoral celebrations um, emperor worship never really caught on. As you recall, that was a big part of the Roman society. And the reason why it didn't catch on was because under Domitian he wanted to change their vineyards to cornfields, and they resented that. So uh, after they resisted that and got that sort of taken care of, uh, they never really wanted emperor worship to be a strong part of their culture. Jewish contingency. I have to say that because he mentions Jews in the chapter. Um, there is uh, uh, no real record of how many uh, uh, the Jewish population in ancient Near Eastern literature. All we have is a statement and there appears to be um, a measure of Judaism and its influence within the city. Church history: How did there get to be a church where people who believed on Jesus Christ as their Savior from their sins, who rose again from the dead, gathered together? How do we know that? The, how, do, how did they ever come into existence? Well, we don't. We don't have much of a record. There's some hint that maybe it was when Paul stated Ephesus, maybe when uh, maybe the Christians from Colossae, as it might say in Colossians chapter one. We just don't know, but we do know that there was a church there and Christ wrote this letter to them. So that's the brief historical sketch. Let's talk about um, Christ's introduction. We're not to our main point yet, so don't panic. How does he introduce himself? Well, look at the text with me. If you have your Bibles, it says, these things says he who is holy. That is what we call an absolute attribute of God. It is something ingrained in who he is, it is unalterable and it is forever. It's eternal. And this attribute is this idea that God is separated from his creation. He's not part of the creation. He made the creation. Now there is a certain philosophy that likes to make God part of creation. That, that's a lie. God made it. He exists outside of it. How do you know this? Well, you and I are created. We had a, we have a beginning and an ending, right? Well, God says, and Jesus says specifically, I exist outside of those limits of time. I can enter into it because I made it, but I also can exit it because I made it. And thus God shows superiority, namely Jesus Christ, shows superiority over his creation. So when he says he's holy, he's identifying a facet of his being as God, that separates himself from what he's made. Now, the second aspect of holiness is this: that it's not only separate from that which is made. You know, kind of like you're the owner of the property. That's you're you're not the property; you own it, right? But the property itself, the people of the human race, rebelled against God. We shook our fist at Him, and when that happened, that pulled us into a condition called a sinful state. Now that sinful state, you don't have to look hard to see it. How many murders happened in Kansas City last year? You know we rank actually on per capita on the top one percent of the country, right? That's an evidence that we, that there is there is a, a downward decline, right? And yet God with holiness is separated from that movement towards the decline of ethics and morals. So holiness has these two concepts. He identifies it right off the bat. Why would he identify it here? Well, there was a God of wine there. They had, they had drunken, immoral celebrations all the time. Then he says this, I am true, right? He was holy, he who is true, genuine, authentic is, is other words that would uh, define this term. He's unlike any of the Greco-Roman gods, and specifically the emperor of their day. He's the real thing, the most trustworthy person. Now, that's a very important concept to understand about God himself. Many uh, people I meet, they're looking for something. They're looking for truth. They're looking for their true identity. They're looking for their true way to follow. Well, Jesus Christ comes to the dinner table and he says, I got that. That's me. What you're looking for is right in front of you, Jesus Christ. Now, if that's you, then I'd like you to meet your Savior today. Now, notice also how he identifies himself. It says the key of David. It's singular, and it's a quote that comes from Isaiah 22:22. And in that in that paragraph, there was a guy named Shimna. See his name here. He was being relieved of duty. Because he was arrogant. Now, the duty that he was being relieved of was being a steward of the treasures of Israel of Judah. Now, what he's saying is, just like Elikim was put in the position to be custodian of the treasures of the king, so Christ has this same role. He is above others. He is the Messiah. He is unique, and he is the one that will hold the storehouses of heaven. See the, the very specifics that he talks about His personhood. Now notice this. There is a pagan allusion to the god Janus and the god Janus would open the door for agriculture, the heavens, the rains every year, would bring peace and war. If you compare the statement of Christ to this cultural uh, uh, moment, what you find is he's saying, and Christ is superior to your thinking, O Philadelphia, of the god of Janus. In addition to that, Elakim was responsible to open the doors of trade and commerce for the country, he would bring those peace treaties in, those trade treaties in, and he would be responsible to not only guard the wealth of Israel, but he was responsible to make it grow. Today, we call that, what do we call that? Uh, the guys that set the interest rates, that group, we don't trust them. Okay, now... What he's saying here is Christ is not only in this position because he's trustworthy, but like you're familiar with Elakim of the Old Testament, in contrast to the God Janus of your day, Christ is responsible to bring in that which would be beneficial for his church, that would help the church grow. In other words, Jesus Christ takes responsibility for his church. Now, that's what we believe here. We have Four men who are identified as the spiritually responsible before God. They, we call them the elders. Now, I feel kind of young, so I don't know if I qualify there. But nonetheless, we call them elders or shepherds or, 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 or whatever other term you want to use. But what the person who's really in charge are not those four men. It's Christ. Now we believe that strongly, so when we get together and pray for the chapel, for the saints here, for those who visit, it's our goal is not to figure out what we're going to do next, like we've got a little boys club going on. You know what we have is we get on our faces before God and we say, "What do you, O Christ, want for your church?" Now that to us is fundamental. And we believe that with all of our hearts. Now, if you ask us in a, in a, when we're all alone, and if you say, would you die for that one? Yes, we'd die for that one. That one's big. Because it's Christ who is the one, Elohim if you will, over the church general and this church in specific. That's how we see it. Now, let's talk about this first point, all right? And the first point was Christ appreciates. Look at what he says In verse nine, I know your works. We've talked about that phrase before. Oida as the as the as the term, I am aware. I have calculated. I've observed. See, I have set before you an open door. No man can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now let's just talk about this idea of the door. All right, that is sort of a metaphor for opportunity. And what he's saying is, it's in the perfect tense, which means that he did it in the past, but it has ongoing effect in relation to the writer of that moment. And what he's saying is this. I have set before you, Philadelphians, an opportunity, an open door that you can go through. And that door will be something I want you to go through. Now then he compares it, notice what he says next, to this, um, oh, excuse me, he is saying to you this. Be encouraged, I am keeping that door open. Your city was infiltrated, propagated, brought to forefront by the Greco-Roman culture, but I am opening a door for the church. Now listen, today there is a lot of culture that is anti-Christian and anti-God. We can hear it in the laws that we make, in the debates that happens in Congress, to the city councils, to the school boards. And, and I don't think we need to sit back and get militant and say, well, we're going to get you back. I think what we say is, listen, God, if God opens a door for us, we should be encouraged and we should go through it. We shouldn't be cowering in the background. We should just let the Lord do what he normally does. Christ is holding that door for us. Right? That's what he's saying, as, as he said to the Church of Philadelphia. Now, notice the phrase, for you have a little strength. You know, when you first read that, you go, so you think I'm weak? Well, um, I don't think that's the emphasis. What he's saying is, what strength you have might seem small, but you're putting your strength in the right place. How do you know that, Steve? Because it says, you have little strength, Oops, let me put my glasses on. You, uh, sub before door, uh, you have little strength, have kept my word, not denied my name. They're putting what little strength they have in the right direction. That's what I think is important here. You see, Christians, those who know Christ as Savior, you might feel like you have a little strength. I mean, just a small, poquito, right? What is it in Japanese? Skoshi, just small. And you feel like you can't contribute much. You feel like, well, I can't do what he does or she does. I can't do this. My health is limited. My finances are limited. My capacities are limited. It has nothing to do with your limitations. Every one of us has little strength. The question is not how much strength you have, how much gifting you have, how much talent you have. The question is, will you invest it in the right place? Christians, that's what I think one of the tenets of this letter. He appreciates the fact that although these believers may not have had every gift in the book, may not have had every blessing out there, every positive thing, they took what they could and they devoted it for the right purpose. Now, what the Lord Jesus is saying is, I value that more than how much you have.
1: Do you hear that?
0: Do you hear the tenor of the Savior here? Do you hear what He is holding in high esteem? What He appreciates? So just look at yourselves, you who know Christ as Savior. You may not have much. That's okay. The Lord is not about measuring that kind of thing. He says, I don't, I don't snuff out a smoking flax. I don't, I don't nip it in the bud. I want it to grow. And so whatever you bring to the table, your bowl of grace that you've been given by the Lord Jesus, you go ahead and devote it to the right cause. And the right cause is loyalty. That's what he says, the right cause. Look at it. You have kept my words, obedience and loyalty. He says, you have gone the extra mile to observe and obey what I have said. And the negative, you have chosen to use your little strength to stay loyal, to not uh, become unfaithful. Do you see what he's saying? I value that. Oh, oh, Philadelphian, I love it that you took whatever little tiny square you've got and you've given it all over to keeping what I said, to following my word, and to being strong in your commitment. That means the world to Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because he outlines it. He underscores it in the text. He states it emphatically. Where are you, my friend? because I'm pretty sure that there's a few of us that feel like we're barely hanging on, and if we didn't have fingernails, we'd be falling down the trap. I want you to know that the Savior is aware of your little strength. I want you to know today that no matter how much or little, little strength you have, if you're able to turn that to obedience to the Savior in whatever capacity is in front of you, if you are able to to turn that over to the Savior in unmitigated loyalty and faithfulness, the Lord God, Jesus Christ, loves that. Well, if I hear something that my Savior loves, I'm going after that, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, now let's move on to the next major point. In the uh, in the culture there, as is before, I go into the next major point. In the culture there, there was a lot of um, pressure, as we talked about in the Church of Pergamos, to join the trade unions, so that you know, and they had their own patron deity and their own practices, which involved uh immoral celebrations lots of trade and you you can't do business and part unless you're part of the uh part of the leather guild or the carpentry guild and lots of pressure to be dis, disloyal to god i am pretty sure that you have pressure to be disloyal to god yourself whether it be morally business wise affection you see You and I are not too different than a Philadelphian. All right, let's go on to the next major point. Christ vindicates. First one was Christ appreciates, now Christ vindicates. Look at verse nine. Those who are of the synagogue of Satan, that's pretty strong, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I and to know that I have loved you. Now this is a a pretty interesting discussion. Um, in the economy of that day, Christianity was relatively new, obviously. This letter was written around 90 AD. Christianity got its feet underneath with the uh, uh, Book of Acts, and that's around 35 AD. So we're talking roughly 55 years, so five decades, five to six decades, after the inception of Christianity, which happened on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Now, over those five and a half decades, um, at the beginning of those five and a half decades, Christianity was thought to be a sect of Judaism, of the law, the Torah, the Mishnah. And so Christianity was not necessarily uh, viewed by the Roman government as being something weird. They just thought it was a different form of Judaism. But those who remained in, in the Jewish religion, they saw it as an affront, as an absolute Takeover move of non Jewish tradition uh, trying to take over Jewish tradition, and so most of the persecution in those early years was from the Jewish people against the the Christians, who many of them were Jewish by blood by by ethnicity now, as you grew in history over those five to six decades, there appeared to be more and more antagonism from the government itself because they began to recognize that, hey, you're not, you're not so Jewish, are you? You're kind of your own beast. You're your own entity. And thus persecution became more focal, more uh, pointed at the church itself. Now, when, when the writer John uses this term, he is referring to the persecution that was happening from those of Judaism against the Christians, kind of the early form that was happening in the inception of the church it was. It makes sense because, you know, things spread from Palestine out across the Roman Empire, and that takes time for it to happen. This Philadelphia church was in Asia Minor, so you would expect that there would still be persecution of the Jewish religious people against the church. And he said, you know, they're, they're a synagogue. That's a Jewish term, uh, a, a synagogue, but it's, not, it's, it's really a synagogue of Satan. It's not a synagogue of Yahweh. Because they say they are Jews, that is, ethnic, ethnically uh, born with the Jewish blood, but they don't value the things that God is doing. He is, he's changed it through Jesus Christ. So really, they are liars. They're, they're not telling the truth about who God is and what he intended in the Old Testament. They're persecuting you. I know that. Now, here's the interesting part. He says... I will make them bow at your feet. Now, notice it doesn't says does not say, I I will make them bow before you as if you, that is the Philadelphian, is a God. He's saying, I will make them bow at your feet. But more importantly, at that moment, they will know that I have had my love for you and it's never quit. You know what? He's vindicating his people. He is showing those who rejected God to say, listen, you're going to come to a point where you're going to see that what I was doing was actually, that what was happening was me doing it. This comes to you also from the book of Philippians chapter 2, where he says there's a coming day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, what I think is happening is he's going to bring low those adversaries of Christ, as they worship Christ, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. And upon doing so, he will say, I can just see the scene. He will say to those who have been enemies of Christ, rejecters of Christ, he will say, don't you know, those who you are persecuting were the ones that I love. Now, if you don't think that's going to bring a smile to your face in that day, then you don't know what this is, right? You ever been in one of those situations? You know, workplace, when it looked like you were the bad guy and somebody comes along and says, actually, actually, Carl was doing his job. He fulfilled everything and he did it perfectly. It's uh, this guy over here didn't do his job. And the boss goes, really? And all of a sudden, Carl gets promoted and the other guy, he gets out, Right. This is kind of the same analogy. He's going to say, listen, you you, you haven't been, and you were a rejecter of me, and you were a persecutor of me, but you failed to realize that I love my baby Christians. I love those people who trusted Christ as Savior. And you should know that from eternity, that these are the ones that have my full affection because they received my provision of Christ on the cross. Oh, listen. Receive the provision of Christ on the cross for you. And God deposits His man. He loves everyone, no doubt, for God so loved the world. But when you trust Him as Savior, he, he really gives you special focus of intensity and intentionality. And He's saying that to these group, this group of people. This is what it's going to look like in a future day. Now what does that tell you and I today, Christian? What tells you that the Savior Has your back. He will vindicate you. He will he will make it. Now he's not saying you're going to get worship. They're going to be actually bowing before Christ. You're just going to be an eyewitness to it. And in that moment, he'll say some of the most blessed words that I think will resonate in your heart for eternity. Know that I Have loved you. I've loved you through your pain and suffering. I love what's happened to you along the way. You will share in this moment where every knee will bow, and it won't be for your glory, it will be for the glory of God, and you will be applauding God as you should, but I will vindicate you. Man, what a precious Savior you have. Now he goes on and he and he and he wants to uh uh, go to the. I think he goes to the third point. So the first point was Christ appreciates. Uh, Christ validates. All right, and then the, the the third one. What did I say it was? I think it was Christ um, affirmates. affirmates, Thank you. affirmates, And that word I made up. All right. So let's look at this next text. Because you have kept verse ten. My uh, kept my command to persevere. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. All right, now we're gonna just stop right there for a minute. Now, this is a pretty important little paragraph or part of a paragraph. And what he's saying is, I recognize your loyalty. I know it's there, I see it. Now, I'm going to do something. Now, there's two uh, perspectives to have here. The first perspective is to understand that in the Philadelphian day, back in the first century, there was an hour of trial, a period of time coming upon them that would try them greatly. And he's saying, I'm going to take you out of that. That, I think, is very true to the historical record. I think there is a second perspective that you should understand. And the second perspective, I think, has to deal with applicability to the church today. You see, the language here is very similar to at least five other passages in the Bible that talk about the Lord Jesus coming to take his church to heaven. First Thessalonians chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, John 14. All of those passages indicate that Christ will come. He will come and according to the 1st Thessalonians 4 passage, he will come to the clouds, trumpet voice of the trumpet of God, voice of the archangel, and he will catch away, that's the Greek word catch away, those who know Christ as savior, the church. And we will meet him, it says in the very specific, meet him in the clouds in the air, and so will we be with the Lord forever. Now, that's a coming day. And I think the language that is used in this text is very extractable from those other five passages. And therefore, I think he is also making a prophetical reference that there will be a day in which I will save you from the hour of trial. What would be that hour of trial in the book of Revelation? It would be the seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth where God intends to deal with the earth dwellers and the Jewish nation. And at that time, it'll get really, really bad, much worse than what you think now. How do you know that, Steve? Well, just read Revelation 4 to 19. You get it all. And it's, it's kinda, kinda frightening in some ways. And what he's saying is, I'm going to take you out of that. Now, this would not be one of the, uh, uh, definitive texts for a pre-tribulation rapture position, if you want to be theological. It is one of the supportive texts. The, uh, text that I think is excellent on this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, I need you to understand that because in the book of Revelation, it's talking about prophetical things, things that yet to happen. And you can get all caught up in all the details, but don't forget the big picture. And the big picture will pick up in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, when he says to John, who was on the earth, come up here, which was in heaven. And that Movement that—that that is that movement of action of body of, of of narrative is designed to express that God intends to call His people with Him to be at His side. Now the world, the, uns, the unsaved world, will say, "You are crazier than a goon or a loon." I didn't know a goon was crazy, but I guess a loon is. And and the point is is that I'm not I'm not making this up. I'm just I'm just telling you that's what it says. That's just what it says. If you want to argue, argue with this book. That's just what it says. Now, I have one job. I, I can believe it or disbelieve it. I choose to believe it. So that's where we're at on that, and I think that's what he's doing. So there's two perspectives. There's one, I think, for the Philadelphian person in that day and age, and there's one that I think has a prophetical element based on the five touch points that this language has with other portions of Scripture which talk about Christ taking his church home. Now, you say, well that's, that's, why would Christ do that? Because he calls the church his bride. Not in some sort of weird platonic way. What he's saying is, the love that I have for the people who trusted Christ as Savior is so deep, it's like the love you'd see between a man and a woman when they want to be married, they can't, they can't be apart any longer. That's the way I love you. And I'm going to speak about that same love when I vindicate you from those who have been torturing you while you've proclaimed your faith in me. Same idea. So, Christ then, Affirmates that hour of trial. The definite article is used. So it's a specific time period. The tribulation is mentioned in Matthew 24. The great tribulation is talked about for the primary portions of Revelation. Doesn't matter. We don't need to go into that. Notice it says upon the whole world. That's what, that's what broadens this, this, this idea of being perhaps more than just what's happening in Philadelphia to test those who dwell upon the earth. That phrase. Earth dwellers is a phrase repeated countless times in the rest of Revelation as God deals with the world once His church is gone. Notice there is a test, there is a pressure, a stress, a danger, all right, uh, to test those who dwell. The, the idea is uncovering what is in the heart of man. When you read the rest of Revelation, you will read passages like this that they that they they. They were so mad at God, they'd cry out to the mountains to fall upon them rather than to cry out to God himself. They would still reject, still harden heart. That's the ultimate of the sinful expression of the human heart against God. Notice also, he says this, Behold, I come quickly. That is what we call the imminent return of Jesus Christ. This is not the only place it's used, but He says, I come quickly. What that, when we say imminent return, what that means is, is that He can come at any moment. And there's only one way that you can get this idea of coming at any moment. And that's in the, if you, if you're theologically oriented in the pre-tribulational view. There's no doubt about it. Any other view, you have some timestamp associated with it. And it can't come quickly because you know. But quickness, immediacy, imminency means that there is no ability to tell the difference of when, where, and how and that's the only only position that really brings that to the surface. Okay, enough theology. He says he says I want you to hold fast. I want you don't let go. It's in it, it's in the at present active tense. You're holding on now and don't let go. You keep holding on until I come. He says, uh, the door, uh, hold fast to what you have. What do they have? Well, they have an open door. They have an open door by Christ. They have a little strength. You hold fast with a little strength. They have my word. They have my, my promised vindication. They have my love that I'll proclaim in that day of vindication. They have their obedience to Christ and his promise of deliverance. You hold on to it all. Christian, listen, you're going through some trials right now. You're going through some heartache and some pain, whether it be family loss, job loss, job change, moves, whatever it is. You're going through some some trials right now. The same thing would be said to you and I, hold fast. You may have a little strength, but you hold on. Use that strength to hold on. You see, I've given you my person, my person. I will come and take you home. And you will be with me and we're never going to be separated again. You hold on to your obedience. You hold on to my love for you. Don't let it go. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that God has become disinterested in you. Don't fall into the trap to think that God is an unjust God, that God is at fault for all this turmoil and mess we're in. It's because of sin that we're in our mess, and it was sin that we committed on our own. Don't fall into those ideologies that move you away from the truth, truth of God in the Bible. God is not some uh, demented person that has to be awakened from a sleep and wants to beat you with his cane so you'll get off his front lawn. That's a lie. No, listen. You hold fast to the word that's true. All right, he also says this. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast, uh, that, uh, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Now there are several crowns in the Bible. Those are rewards that are given to, to those, uh, who have been faithful. That's talked about in Corinthians and Romans. Now, this is unique. It appears that there is a crown for faithfulness, right? And he's saying to you, it can be stolen. You can lose your way. Beloved, we have had saints here. We have had Christians who have lost their way. I don't know about you, but I bleed over those souls. I bleed over them. We should. That's what the body does. That's what it means to love one another. And those souls, there are on my lips at the throne of grace. They should be. They should be. Someone has been stealing their crown. Do you have that position? Are you in that state right now, where maybe someone's trying to steal your crown and your joy and your faith? Well, I think you should listen to the words of the Savior. Hold fast. Hold fast. All right. Lastly, we'll end here. We have the promise of God of Christ. Not only does he affirmate, but he authenticates. This is his promise of what will come. To the overcomer, to the one that endures, conquers these circumstances. He says, "You will be a pillar." In verse twelve, in the temple of my God. Now, that's referring to a future temple. Ezekiel talks about that future temple, but it's said in a metaphorical way. He's saying, "Now, listen, I'm gonna." Doesn't mean that you're going to actually hold up the edifice, and your arms are not going to get touched. I'm not really talking about something like that. He's talking metaphorically, and what he says is. Is uh, is is borrowing from the imagery of Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, they constructed massive uh, edifices and beautiful um, uh, uh, temples, and and you would have pillars that would hold up the edifice. You know, like the Di- Diana had what is it like a hundred of those things surrounding that rectangular perimeter. Well, um, he's he's alluding, I think, to that, and he's saying. I'm going to make you part of the structural integrity of my temple to come. I'm going to authenticate you. I'm going to put you and I think he's talking I think he's practically talking about a day in that thousand years when Christ reigns on the earth and how we'll be part of his administrative uh, administrative activities. But no, notice it says you shall go out no more. Sorry right and uh he shall go out and go out no more you see in the history of philadelphia there was multiple earthquakes which drove people out of the city into the non city area so they would not get injured by stuff falling upon them i think he's alluding to this and then on record there was a couple of earthquakes in philadelphia in which the people had to flee the city he was saying You're not gonna be under the threat and tyranny of things falling around you, falling down around you like you're experiencing right now, Philadelphian. I will put you in a place where you are forever protected as an, as an eternal, eternal structure in my dwelling place and you can rest on that. You see how he's authenticating? He's, he's making them secure. And then he says this, I will write, I love this part, He says, I will write on him the name of my God. Notice the personal pronoun, my God, and the name of the city of my God out of the heaven from my God. You know what he's saying? He says he's alluding to another practice of that culture where if there was a priest or a civil servant who was really noteworthy and they're and their service to the community, they would have a pillar put on one of the city structures dedicated to their honor. God, I think Christ is saying the same thing. You serve me faithfully. You come through this. You overcome. I will treat you with special honor. I will hold you in high degree. You will be like a pillar, like you see in Philadelphia, who holds up the edifice and there will be a special inscription given to you and it will be one that only you and I know. It will be personal, it will be private, and it will be precious. That's what he does for the one who perseveres. So how does that affect us? Well, society would never honor Christ. Not today, not back then. But if you honor Christ, Christ will honor you. That's actually an Old Testament phraseology. It comes from the person of Eli, Eli. And when God was talking to Eli, when Jehovah was, the, 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 he said, he who honors me, I will honor. That was then rewritten and put in a movie script called The Chariots of Fire about Eric Liddell, who would, out of conviction, not race on Sunday. The movie had it wrong. It was uh, not the American runner who gave him the note. It was actually a trainer. But the point is simple. If you honor the Lord, he will honor you. Isn't that all that, isn't that, all that matters? Isn't that all that matters? You're going to do the right thing because the honor of the Lord is what you care about? Not somebody saying, hey, that was a good job or, wow, you blessed a lot of people. You're just going to do the right thing because you love the honor that your Lord gives you. You see, that's called living in the fear of the Lord. That, that, I, have a, I have a vested and, and intimate connection with the God <laughs> of the universe so that I am so taken with what he thinks I will do anything for his honor. That's what it is. That's what we call a church in revival. That's what, that's what Philadelphia was, a church in revival. It was coming back, it was online, it was, it was, it was enduring, and they were doing things with what little they had for the right reasons, and Christ noticed it, He appreciated it, He affirmed it, right, and, and He authenticated it, He validated it. Oh, Christians, listen, that's the kind of church we want to be. So today, the Lord has moved among you to make gift packages for the homeless. He who honors me, I will honor. That's what we believe. The Lord Jesus even said this in the the book of Matthew. He was saying, the book of Matthew was talking about end time events. and, And he called, our people came to him and said, Lord, Lord, we called you Lord, Lord. Don't you remember us? he says, I don't remember you. He went to others. Lord, Lord, do you remember us? I remember you because you did it to the least of these in my name. You do it to the least of these in my name. It's like you did it to me. So I remember you. He who honors me, I will honor. Isn't that precious? Friends, you have the best Savior ever. This Savior of ours is extraordinary. I'm not making it up. I don't dream this stuff at night. I sleep at night. I just read it in my Bible. It's all there. Well, let's pray. I've gone on way too long, and you're probably really hungry, and you're really glad the series will end on Wednesday. So praise God. Father, we thank you that we've been able to open this book. and. And recognize a few very beautiful things about your word and about your son. And we thank you that he is God, that he is true. He is faithful. He has the key of David. He's like, he's like a, uh, the perfect Elohim. And Father, today we want us to say thank you, O oh Father, for this son of yours who not only appreciates, he validates, he affirmates, and he authenticates. What a, what a splendid administrator of all things spiritual. Father, today there are perhaps maybe some that are not part of your church and, and they've been longing, looking, thinking, wandering, pondering. I want what this is. I just don't know. Oh God, open their eyes to what it means, what it means to trust Christ as Savior. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.